is knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is a special episode for me. It will stand in as 375. Jason Lingren is with me and Min Win. Most Americans would probably say that Nagayan. You're all, you're almost certainly familiar with the last name. I believe the correct way to say it is Win. Uh, Min is a teacher at Chitahati High School in Indonesia. Back in a previous episode, which was members only, 151.5, we did an episode with Min, and at the time, he was teaching seniors. I think maybe he was doing uh, juniors and seniors, but we did an episode with his class because he had allowed them to choose a Crow 777 radio episode and then write a report on it. You can go back to 151.5. Actually, it's a members-only episode because we only had an hour. um, And check it out. It's one of my favorite episodes. But Min is back with us. We're going to cover a very interesting thing. Min is now down into grade school, uh, grades five and six. Uh, Chitahati is a Christian-based high school in Indonesia. But this curriculum, I could only dream of coming up even into junior high school or high school and getting offered some of the things we're going to cover here. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. Did I drop anything there? I think you got it. All right. And I do recommend that you go back and listen to episode 151.5. It's quite an episode, and it's quite a contrast. As we did it, all I could think of was there's no way under heaven that an American high school would ever go for what we just laid down. It didn't harm anyone, but the truth is we know a principal has to approve it. The, you know, officialdom has to be on board and all those ducks were in a row for men over there in Indonesia, which goes to show you something, by the way, I'm pretty sure his bandwidth is better than ours. If you, if you're picking up what I'm laying down, anyhow, welcome men. Hey, you're right. It is pronounced men win. So I am very impressed with uh, the linguistic aspect of that. You know, when I was growing up, I was interested in every culture but my own. <laughs> um, so I always tried to make friends with other people from other places. And uh, I think I was probably in my teens when I met my first win. And actually, very similar to you, uh, related to the fall of Saigon and the end of Vietnam. Yeah, that that part of Vietnamese life, you know, it's it's coming down now to almost becoming as commercialized as most of the modern countries that you're going to see. But there's still that root part, that traditionalism, that uh, religious aspect that I still hold dear, definitely. Well, before we get into this, just let me say, I am so impressed. He sent us notes and a a quick PowerPoint with uh, just a handful of images that do things like relate the seven hermetic principles, all the way through the wheel of law and Buddhism, all the way to the book of Matthew. And by the time you hear this, you will have heard our episode with Lucas, which is about the world battery idea being hermetically sealed here. And through the whole episode, I was trying to convey that this applies to everything. There's nothing you can think of. There's nothing you can do that isn't underlaying the principles um, that surround the topics that we're talking. And the same is true here. But Jason, how do you want to do this? I'm starting in on the word doc. Do you want to queue up each thing as we go along or how do you want to do it? Well, let's just uh, start off with Min's background, I think. Okay. All right. Well, I started out as um, teaching in California. And at that point, I was teaching at a Lutheran school and I was a youth pastor for the junior high and uh, teaching mathematics. So I've taught a gambit of subjects from math to literature to history. And doing so, it just triggered my desire to teach, to learn. And when I got to Indonesia, I was asked to teach English at a Christian school, Chitahati, here in Surabaya. So right now it is good evening for me as it is good morning for the two of you. And as I was teaching, I was teaching the IB program. This is International Baccalaureate. And this is a high-level college preparatory class that only students that wanted to get into universities in Europe or in America, in China, Australia, if they wanted to study abroad, they would take the IB curriculum. And my subject was language, English A, language and literature. So this was a top top level of English that you could take at Chitahati. And I did that for about five years. 
And this curriculum allows you to choose your source material. And this is where Crow enters the story because I was listening to Crow uh, probably about 2016, 2017. And in doing so, I thought this would be perfect material to talk about how media manipulates language. So I had my students listen to an episode and show how media portrays that topic and how their research portrays it. And they found vastly different ways in which media covered, twisted, hid um, these ideas that Crow was introducing. So this got me really thinking, you know, how can we use our curriculum to show what is real and not what is expected to be taught? But, you know, I I love the IB curriculum. Um, I taught theory of knowledge for all those who are understanding IB. I was a cast coordinator, extended essay supervisor. I was knee deep, neck deep in the IB curriculum. And I loved it. It really allowed you to explore critical thinking and examine how students should learn, not what they should learn, but how they should learn. But, you know, like any other thing, I realized this too was a falsehood. Because I went to workshops and as I tried to discuss, wait a minute, why are students literally killing themselves with stress to try to get into these universities, to try to get perfect scores, to try to uh, achieve the highest possible mark that they can to the detriment of their health and happiness? You know, I had students who say, I loved math until I took IB. I loved physics until I took IB. And this curriculum, as great as it is, it killed a lot of passion for these students. So, you know, I, I too lost my passion because I was teaching how to pass the IB exams, how to get the best score for college entry and not teaching actual knowledge and application. So I decided to move down to elementary. If they asked me, I asked to leave because, I, you know, I was just tired of teaching. And every seven years, I I moved to a different country and do some teaching or move to a different school. But they asked me to stay and they asked me to move down to elementary. So I decided to take that IB concept down to the elementary level. And, you know, and having so much fun because I'm teaching again, the kids are learning IB principles, concepts without IB stress. So, you know, my goal as a teacher is to make learning fun and enjoyable again. One of the things that impressed me when you first reached out to us was my mind was blown that you were in a place, of course, we're all, we're all kind of biased and bigoted as American because we've been told we're the best thing since sliced bread. Um, and so now we're having to face up to the hype that we used to think was true. But you had basically told your students back in the day, pick an episode and do a report on it. And most of it a lot of it was about media falsehood. And what blew my mind is I was reasonably sure that wouldn't fly in any high school that I'm familiar with. But if I'm hearing you correctly about the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, which you refer to as IB, um, it's stressing how to get along in the system, but not that much about the system. Is that an accurate description? Yeah. You know, it's, Any kind of elite that you reach, right? Any type of expert that you listen to, they're going to put their own spin on what they think is correct. So, of course, the IB program, which I said I love, I love the curriculum. They're saying this is the best way to learn. And this is the best approach for being successful. And they're right in a sense, but the students, they just ended up, you know, I had students with eating disorders. I had students with depression. I had students with anxiety. I had students just mental and physical health was deteriorating because of all the stress that was placed on them by parents, by themselves, by the teachers. And school shouldn't be like that. You know, so yeah, it's how they want this. This is how you should learn, right? You should go through this route, this rote memorization and these concepts. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say because I've been so jaded by the education system, but I love teaching. You know, that, does, does that sound too much of a contradiction? No, um, because like, like when I was young, you would bump into a teacher 
back in the 60s, maybe up into the 70s, that was like you. I want to teach. I want to touch these young minds and offer them something that matters. And they were few and far between, um, but mostly it was a different time. And I noticed in your notes here, you have things like No Child Left Behind, Common Core. What we find in this country, as far as I know, and there may be many parents listening to this that know better than I do, but what I noticed coming up in a family of teachers, my father was a PhD at the university level and had a lot to do with the testing and teaching that went on in grade school and high school. And from that point to now, all the way in the 60s to now, what I see is the edge edges being shaved off, the standards being dropped down, the idea that you have a mind and you can use it thrown out the window to this kind of regurgitory idea that you read this, you memorize this, you regurgitate this, you can get your A. And the problem with that is it breaks a mind away from applying things to the real world. If if you follow what I'm trying to express here, yeah, it definitely is. You know, the, the whole fact of correspondence, correspondence. You know, not just as above, so below is as above throughout. You know, the, throughout your whole entire life is correspondence, and you don't get that with modern education. and And I think the Asian culture memorization plays a gigantic factor because when I first started teaching, the kids were saying, what do I need to know to get an A? What do I need to learn to get an A? And, you know, I I told my teachers and my admin, I said, you know what? I'm not going to do rubrics. And then they said, wait, what do you mean you're not going to do rubrics? We need rubrics. We need to know what we need to do to get an A, B, C, D. And I said, no, that's, that's the wrong way to think. When you're at a job interview, they don't give you a rubric. When, when you're in front of your boss and they, they have a project and they have all these different groups, show me your best project. The boss doesn't give you a rubric. I'm saying, here's the assignment. Do what you can. Show me what you got. Try to impress me with what you know. And then as they do their assignments, you can look at an assignment and say, that is awesome. Crow, you can listen to a guest and say, wow, that person knows what they're talking about or that person is full of bull, right? Jason can listen to music and say, oh, that song is awesome. That musician knows what they're doing or that song is garbage. We don't need a rubric. And that's what I said. I said, when I look at a report, when I look at a presentation, when I look at a paper, I can say excellent, good, average, poor, below standard. And that's the score I give. But once you start doing that, you don't say, okay, make sure 3,000 words, make sure 250, this and that, make sure you have this. No. So I've taken rubrics completely out of my grading system. And the school allows me to do that while all the other teachers are stuck in rubrics. So people know there may be a lot of people that are not familiar with the usage of that word, other than, you know, it's not even the same word, Rubik's Cube. It's the same idea. What does rubric mean in the way you were using it in the school system? So a rubric is a grading system, right? So, for example, you break it into four categories in a presentation. Content, one through 10. And you might say, okay, composure, one through 10. Body language, one through 10. And you give a mark. If you stand straight, if you don't slow your speech, if you use hand gestures, you get certain scores. So teachers end up throughout a presentation circling scores. Okay, they use their hands. Okay, they had eye contact. Okay, they didn't lower their voice. Okay, they stood straight, right? So they're marking all these things instead of enjoying the presentation. So a lot of times they're circling numbers, numbers, numbers. And at the end of the presentation, yes, they made it under a certain amount of time. They hit all the main points that you need to. They're adding up the scores and then applying the grade. So uh, what a rubric is, is placing a scoring chart, right? So if you have poise, volume of your voice, hand gestures, you have all these different categories that you score one through five. So you're listening to the speech. And if you see them eye contact, you give them a three. If you hear them mispronounce a word, you do a minus two. So at the end of the presentation, you add up all the scores and that's their grade. But you lose the essence of the presentation. You lose the heart of the presentation 
because you're caught in numbers. Whereas I would just listen to the presentation. And at the end, I would say, wow, that was an awesome presentation. It's between 95 and 96. Whoa, that presentation was sloppy. It didn't seem prepared. 74 through 78. And then I would fine tune the scores. But you listen to the presentation as a whole. And then you just, you know, you know what's a good interview pro when you're done. You know a great guest. You know um, great music. You know a great movie. You know a good book. You don't need a rubric to evaluate these things. Well, I, I think I'll be blunt. The reason I asked you to describe that is so that we can make the point that you've kind of already made. This is homogenization. If we were to imagine a classroom through of young minds, each born in a different station of the sky clock, what it guarantees is there's going to be a wide variety. Some people will be very alpha. Some people will be the opposite of alpha. There will be everything in between. And what a rubric does is chooses what trait they think matters and then grades everyone against it. When the truth is, when I go out into nature, there's a lion there. That lion will whack anything around. It's as alpha as you can get, but there's also a rabbit. There's a zebra. There's everything in between. So how can we measure a zebra against the traits of a lion? And I know this is an extreme example, but I'm doing it to make the point. But I also want to interject here. One of the things Min sent us is I have a, a short PowerPoint with a handful of uh, images. And what he's done is he's taken this to seven hermetic principles and he's just done an introductory thing where you can match the color to a certain point in the principles. Then he's gone through Hinduism to, to show the chakra sign, the hermetic principles, how it relates to Buddhism, Christianity, and even has the Masonic steps in here. And as you go through, you see the chakra system, you see the seven hermetic principles, even includes, I don't know how many people are familiar with it. It looks like an old-fashioned uh, wheel from a ship, you know, that wheel symbol that's typically used to show the eight way laws of Buddhism and other things about Buddhism. Then he relates it to the Beatitudes, which is from the book of Matthew. Um, and then he closes out with a Masonic thing. And the moment I saw it, I realized that men grasp this. This is universal. These ideas are universal. So to introduce something like the seven hermetic principles, um, is to underlie every other thing that's been built away from that remote period of time. I don't know what else to add, man. And when I saw it, I was like, oh my word, if I would have ever had a teacher show me this when I was in even junior high, probably would have changed a lot of things for me. Uh, you, you know, and, and I think what people don't realize, and I learned by having my son, I had my son at a, a late age. I didn't get married till I was 37. I didn't have my first son until I was 42. So now he's five years old and unvaxxed, fresh food, sunlight, exercise. And he doesn't wear a mask when he's walking around during this time. I don't wear a mask, even though we're in lockdown here in Indonesia and they have all these mask rules. And he learns so much. I mean, I, I talked to him. I taught him parallax this morning, right? I had him cover an eye and look at a clock and cover it with one finger leave that finger there and cover the other eye. And he saw how his finger shifted, you know, so you can teach young minds at such an early age. And you're not explaining, well, this is what parallax is used for, but they love to learn. They learn through curiosity. When I say teaching is nature and I say human nature, when you think of that biblically, you think of human sin, right? The, the original sin, the fall of man. But human nature is curiosity. And that might be the greatest fall of man is he was so curious. He wanted knowledge. And kids learn through playing. Kids learn through curiosity. And once you put these concepts in, you don't know what spark it creates. You don't know when it creates. Teachers can be so humble and so arrogant. You think you're going to be the only one that can reach this child at this time. No. You just lay down concepts, you lay down foundation, you lay down a love of learning, a curiosity, and it will awaken. You don't know when, you know, when did I become awakened to these concepts? It was much later in my life. And hopefully now my son 
is going to be awakened to these concepts at the age of four and five. And my kids at the grade five and six will awaken to these concepts. But it's just laying down curiosity and joy of learning and discovery. You know, sometimes I try to think of a way to describe the age we're in. A lot of people want to fake like it's the age of technology. It's really the age of deception. But to take that into a meaningful way to think about it, it's homogenization, isn't it? Covering up everyone's face. There is so much variety in the faces of this world that are now blocked out. When we go back to the idea of the seven hermetic principles, what we're doing is giving an infinite number of ways to think about things that happen in this world. When we come up to where the world is trying to get us, it is literally homogenized. Variety must be removed. This is the big test for our age is how much variety will be pulled from the world around us. I think the first time I ever tried to talk about this, probably three or four, maybe five years ago, I tried to use cars as the example where when I was young, there was every color of car. There was seemingly um, this big pushback from car manufacturer. Oh, you made this cool car. We're going to make this cool car. And they were very different up to where we are now, where the colors are very limited. One class of car looks, you can't tell the difference between a BMW and a Hyundai in a certain class of car. They look very similar. This is the homogenization of life. And what this comes down to is control. Variety is the enemy of someone who wants to take total control. And so much of what you're about here is keeping alive or maybe even resuscitating the idea of variety. You know, variety also scares my fellow teachers. Because if you think about it, teachers teach how they were taught, right? So they've gone through a generation of here's the worksheet, memorize, here's the test, excellent job, here's a sticker. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, right? And now I'm doing a topic on the Iliad and I'm talking about the Trojan War. And I asked my students, how can you explain to me why two warring factions would go after each other for the love of a woman? And one student might write a poem. One might write a love song because his heart was broken. One girl might draw a picture depicting the Trojan horse, right? One person might write an essay. One person might make a poster, an animation, a comic book. So I say, submit your, your understanding of this story. And you get all these different forms of text, all these different ideas of how betrayal, how love all connect. But teachers are afraid, well, how do I grade a poem versus a play? How do I grade an essay versus a comic book? And that goes back to my no rubric. Did they do an excellent job of portraying the information, reflecting the concepts and themes? Or did they do a poor job? And teachers are afraid because they can't imagine how you can compare all these different types of media. But that's what a teacher needs to do. Did the student understand the concepts they were trying to teach? It doesn't matter how they express it. Did they understand it? It's homogenization again. The rubric is, I don't, I'm not going to badmouth it, but it's the furthest thing that I would ever want to have to deal with if I was teaching. After all, a painter is probably not going to write a song. A musician is probably not going to paint a painting. And that simple observation shows what the rubric is about. Um, it's acting like these varied individuals who may have an interest here or a talent there cannot be compared to one another. So how can we pull out all the variety so we can compare them to one another? And I'm with you all day long, but I'll say another thing. For you to have introduced um, the myths and the so-called classics is actually, in my mind, another way to interject the idea of seven hermetic principles or a way for us to talk about the endless variety that happens in this world. And for most of the Western world and more and more of the world all the time, as Western ways take over, it's what everything is built on. And if we are never introduced to these things and we always accept that the surface narrative is what we should be paying attention to, 
we never reach the deeper meanings. How much of the of the myth have you actually interjected into your curriculum? You know, I'm a history major, and um, when you understand history, you know we. I talked about the Greeks, I talk about the Romans, and I talk about storytelling as an English teacher. And that's all history is. It's his story, right? It's storytelling. So the fact that I can introduce these stories, you no, know, at first I, I did simple things like the line, the witch in the wardrobe, right? The C.S. Lewis is Christian based. It's an allegory of Christianity. Then you move into things like Lord of the Rings, where you have some more uh, deeper uh, connotations and and more myth laid into it. Uh, you throw in different Greek mythologies because whether it's Hercules and twelve labors, I've loved your concept of you know dissecting the twelve labors of Hercules. When doing that, you know each of those labors connects to different astrological signs and you know different goals in which he's trying to achieve. But it's all basic themes, like I said. Good teachers take complex ideas and make them simple. So the ideas of wanting a mother's love, connecting it to them, wanting to prove yourself, common allies, you know, the hero's journey. My grade 12 students right or sorry, my grade six students right now, they're doing a year-long master project where they have to write a novel or produce a podcast or write songs, but it needs to be an an, an anthem. So if you're going to do a podcast, you need to make six episodes. If you're writing songs, you need to write four songs. If you're writing a novel, you need to write 14 chapters. But I just got done this first semester introducing to them to the hero's journey. So then once they learn the hero's journey, I said, what parts of these are in your outline, in your story? And they're going to submit this at the end of the year. When you're writing your song, what journey do you want to take your audience on? When you're making your podcast, what do you want to introduce? I want one of your podcasts to be about entering the cave, right? A time of darkness. Um, I want yours to rejoice. What are some trials that you've experienced? So each different journey corresponds to a different podcast or a YouTube docuseries. Some of them are making comic books, but they're making these long standing projects that will take the entire year to do, but it gets them thinking on different levels, outlining different aspects of the hero's journey in their work. So yeah, I get to introduce those concepts, but like you said, you have to be tricky because it is a Christian school. So I can't say, well, these gods are, let's talk about the Buddhist gods, the Hindu gods. Let's talk about, you know, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. And you know, that of course the admin will say, wait, wait, what are you doing? That's why I teach the hero's journey and I use different stories from different cultures so they understand, oh, he's showing different cultures their hero's journeys. It's, you know what, these very roadblocks, like you and I, before we came on the air, I asked a few questions so that I could modify how I'm going to talk about things. When you look at the idea of Greek gods, a perfect example, my father gave me my first myth book when I was very young and I loved it. I was intrigued by it, but at no time did I start to draw the lines. I thought, well, what's wrong with these people that they think there's actually people living on a mountain somewhere and they're petty. These are supposed to be gods. They're petty. And so I was intrigued and I kept at it, but I didn't draw the lines. You said a thing that correlates directly to my life. When I was young, Either my sister or my father gave me the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I jumped in. You know, it was something like 10 years or more later that someone deigned to inform me that that was an allegory for Christianity, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, how am I stupid? Am I blind? How could I have read this and not at no time drawn the line to all these allegories? And that's the point where I started to go back and I started to try to draw the lines, still having a difficult time. But I even started thinking about in Western schools you're familiar with, you're going to get Animal Farm, you're going to get, you know, Lord of the Flies, you're going to get all these, well, actually pre-world takeover blueprints is what they are. But yeah. um, the, the closest I ever came in school was one of the teachers, and by the way, you picked a book, so some people hadn't read Lord of the Flies, and they would ask, like, what does the pig represent? 
And at that time, I'm thinking, well, it must re- represent something, but I couldn't draw the line. And that's really the big difference. What I see in your curriculum, once you draw a line for someone, that mind understands there's lines that can be drawn. And from there, sky's the limit. I spent the whole first third of my life not even understanding that a line could be drawn. You know, Crow, and that's what we do in the grade 11 and 12 IB curriculum. That's what you do. You're right. You're always making these connections. What is the author's intent? What is the symbolism? What are the themes, the allegories? But that's why I wanted to go to grade five and six, because you're teaching these IB level concepts to grade five and six students. But it's without the stress of having to get into a university. So you can say, hey, you know, we just got done reading about Jesus's sacrifice. How does that tie in with Aslan's sacrifice? What are the similarities? What are the differences? You know, and when they start to make connections, they find allegories everywhere. And that's why allegories are everywhere. Nature is an allegory to these stories. The sky clock is an allegory to these stories. Religion is an allegory to stories. We should get Jason in on this because he was a much better student than I ever was. And he retains way more than I ever did. I never appreciated school. And up until my adult years, I did everything I could to get away from it, (laughs) even dropping out of high school, believe it or not, uh, which threw my dad for a loop who had been teaching his whole life. But Jason, what's your take? Even when, when Jason and I talk now, he's constantly referencing things about science that I forgot 30 years ago. <laughs> but what's your take, Jason? Well, I certainly didn't have any teachers who were doing anything at the level Min is doing. Let's just start with that. But uh, I still, to this day, have an interest in science and history, as might be noticed with some of the shows that we do and the research that I do to put into it. Not that I agree with everything that mainstream science says, but I like to keep up on a lot of the concepts that are out there. And uh, the one thing I'm I'm noticing more and more with Western school systems is they've really been trying their damnedest to make it as boring as hell so that people aren't as interested and aren't using their minds. Like the one thing I, I seriously pick up on all the time is that they seem to have wiped out or nearly wiped out the capability for critical thinking at all. You know, th- there's a side of this that that I can interject. So I grew up in the household where my father was a PhD. Everyone was teachers. And when he would talk with his colleagues when I was very young, I noticed they'd reference these books and they all knew about them. I, all I knew was the title. And I used to think, well, to be someone who knows anything in this world, you, you have to be familiar with these things. And at a young age, I, I tried things like James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans, which I would recommend to anyone. Problem was, open up that book as an adult and see how hard it is to switch your mind over to the language. Even now, I have to work at it if I pick up Last of the Mohicans in the original way. But over time, I went and I noticed in men's notes, you got Lao Tzu, uh, Art of War, among other things. Uh, These are critical, critical things. And the reason they're critical is because they're all related. But what they, in the way they differentiate is this culture went at it this way. But this is where the seven hermetic principles come back. I could underlie a Chinese Confucianism with a biblical from the West or I can go anywhere and I can underlie those ideas. So what it becomes is a is the way it's being presented and thought about. And that is the whole game from my point of view. When you say the right words to a mind and that mind draws the line for the first time, you have opened a universe. And for me, that's where it all comes down, man, is how do you say the right words? You know, with bringing up Lao Tzu, right? Um, when, when I was teaching... Uh, religion and uh, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Hinduism. We had a whole unit of that, the, the early um, Eastern religions in my history class. You know, I, I say Confucianism is you want to do good, do good. But Taoism is you don't want to do bad, right? So, so that's the difference. Either do good or don't do bad. So I said, a good teacher doesn't teach. Because so many times a teacher will overteach, overteach. And that is a monotonous drum 
like your voice is just pounding into the student's head and they just get drowned out by your words when you just over teach. But when you give a project and say, go explore it and you pull yourself back and only when they ask questions, only when they say, hey, what about this? Only when they find themselves getting lost and need direction, do you step in? So I teach without teaching. And many people mistaken that for laziness. Oh, you're just saying you teach without teaching, so you don't teach. No, that's even harder because you want to jump in and give them the answers. But by pulling back, you don't know when they will come with that answer. And then if they discover it themselves, it becomes more powerful. You know, I was listening to uh, Marty Lees with Gematria, and he said it perfectly. If they learned math this way, the way I teach numerology, they would love math. If you learned history this way, then they would love history. If you learn science as an exploration, not endless theories upon theories of mindless theories that aren't even true half the time, then you would love science. But we are all dumbed down as teachers just as much as students because we're given, fill out this lesson plan, Fill out this rubric, fill out these grade sheets, fill out this evaluation. How are you going? We are doing more paperwork than the kids with their homework. And that's just preparing for a lesson. So you want to make your lesson as simple as possible so you can just replicate these lesson plans because you have all this red tape, this bureaucracy, this dumbing down of the curriculum instead of exploration of knowledge. You know, there's a good example that can illustrate what we're talking about here uh, with the NIV Christian Bible. Everyone's familiar with the NIV, the New International Version. There's all these footnotes under every scripture that tell you what you're supposed to know about that scripture. I once went to a Bible study where they said, no NIVs, no footnotes. You read this, and then you come in with what you got from it. And invariably, in a 15 or 20-person group, everyone found something a little different. And that's when I started thinking of why did they call it the living Bible? And to me, it started to make sense because every pair of eyes takes away something slightly different. And what I found and what I learned is, yeah, I was raised Lutheran, but if I went to my Lutheran church and said, what does this scripture mean? Most of them would have the same response. And so what's happened is the variety has been homogenized out of it, which means you've lost some of the value. Ironically, in this Bible study, we got to a point where I was saying, well, you just, you're making a statement that reincarnation doesn't exist, but here's an example of someone died. Now they're alive. Isn't isn't that like reincarnation? I got booted out. They literally booted me out for asking the question, how are these ideas different? But to come back to the point, the idea of a living text to me is that what gets drawn and what gets learned depends on the mind that's examining it. You know, Crow, when when I was exploring my uh, PowerPoint, right, of how I can connect all these different concepts, I came across the Freemason stairway, right? And I don't know how many people are familiar with it, but if you look at this stairway, it winds and goes up. And the first step is actually hearing, seeing, feeling, smelling, tasting, the five senses, right? And, And I think of that as, one-year-old, two, three, four, five years old, right? You're discovering the world through your five senses. But the first step is grammar. And when we think about it, when we learn to speak, the first words we really think of, noun, verb, I am, right? So this goes to your hermetic principle, I am, right? It is mentalism. What you think you are, that's what you are, I am. But it's also gender, And that's being destroyed right now with our first grade kids where they're learning concepts of maybe you should tell your parents you want to be a girl today or a boy today or don't use pronouns, this and that. They're trying to destroy the very first foundational hermetic principle of I am. You know, who are you? That's not who you are. You're like everybody else. You're not unique. You're not special. You don't think a different way. So when you look at grammar, the next step is rhetoric, which is persuasion, I feel. The next step is logic, I do, logically. And then you have 
arithmetic, ge geometry, music, which I think Jason would appreciate. That's the sixth level. And the very top level, which Crow, you would appreciate, is astronomy, seeing that the heavens were created for you, that you are a part of this creation. You know, so all these different steps that you find in Buddhism, in, in Christianity, and the more I look and explore different ones, I'm sure I can find the connections because they are all there. But the most basic one is grammar. It's just a language that we use, and they're manipulating the language like crazy in today's education system. Well, this is why you can't teach things or introduce anyone to things like the seven hermetic principles. Because once you read, and by the way, one of those things in the principles is directly to do with gender. And the reason it's directly to do with gender is because there's polarity and duality in our world. And by the way, gender is required to make more of anything for most of us. There are a few things that are Afro aphroditic, but these are not up to the level of human beings. But what I love about your inclusion of the Masonic step principle is very few people realize that these are the in the order. Uh, it's almost like you're going through school. And when you reach astronomy, you would be you know graduating the highest college class, but they work in reverse in an actual way. If you think about it in terms of astrology coming down, the music of the spheres, how that relates to the duality in our material world will have to do with geometry. But when you take them the right way, going up the steps, you learn, wait a minute, most people would think arithmetic isn't trumped by geometry, and yet here it is. And the real idea here is in the beginning, you have hearing, seeing, feeling, smelling, tasting. These are the tools you have to take in the world around you. What's interesting about what you've included here is not many people would ever think hearing is going to relate to a Tuscan column, seeing a Doric column, feeling an Ionic column. Smelling a Corinthian colony, a column, and up it goes. They've encoded parts of history here that certainly we don't know anything about um, because I'm pretty well read and I can come up with ideas of why these things correspond, but I can't figure out totally why they've done it this way. But then again, you're relating this whole idea back to the Hermetic principles through the chakra ideas within what you've laid down here is even the colors purple through red with green being in the middle. Uh, it's all-inclusive, which is exactly what this Masonic staircase intends to be, all-inclusive. What do you think's important to get into the end of the first hour, man? Well, you know, I think the destruction of the education system is, uh, I think, something most parents, we're, we're finding out. And I think with the Zoom, you know, this Zoom classrooms with this lockdown, it's been a blessing and a curse. The blessing is parents are realizing what their students are being taught. You know, even in Indonesia, I'm, I'm following this critical race theory, this uh, election that took place in Virginia. And parents wanting to know that their students are being taught properly. And when you look at no Child Left Behind, Common Core Curriculum. You know, now they're saying math is racist. If you say two plus two is five, then you're a racist because that is a white or a Western construct. They're saying gender is phobic. If you want to say your child is a, you know, one gender, you're racist. If, if you don't believe that you're an oppressor versus you are being oppressed, they are trying to destroy this generation through the education system, they, they've gotten the early 20s, right? The early adults with college, the indoctrination there. They've gone to high school with the curriculum now. And now they're really trying to attack the primary students, those kindergarten through sixth grade students, where your mind, your mind is the most malleable at that point. And they're, they're trying to destroy it with this crazy curriculum. And you know what? I've known a lot of parents. Or saying, I want to continue to be a stay-at-home mom. I want to continue to be a dad that works on my homework with my child because that is the best way they learn when their parents are sitting next to them and they're not just being spoon-fed information. So even though we've had this lockdown, 
parents are starting to see what curriculum is like, and they're starting to realize they need to have a stronger role in their students' education. You know, even running a podcast like Jason and I run, when I scan through comments, I see the damage of exactly what you're talking about. One of the things with gender that's real big is fluid. Gender is fluid now for a lot of minds. You can't look at seven hermetic principles and lock that down across all because it doesn't work that way. You might be able to find examples. So that's what they're leveraging on to make to, to try to get you to think that this is 100% true. When in truth, it's probably 0.0005% true, but I see the comments coming. And this is the problem with language and media. I'll see the word written right there in a comment, fluid. Well, that's not your idea. You just regurgitated a thing and I know the source and the source is called media. For a long time, I kept hearing the word snowflake and just these little things that indicate that a person is falling back to echo instead of trying to apply. And what it did for me is I got worried about my own habits. I started to try to look through some of the things I did and look for those words. Am I doing it? Am I being programmed? Which I know I am. Um, it's a constant, you know, it's a lifelong thing to, to avoid letting someone else do your thinking. And what I found is I was doing it too, maybe in more subtle ways, but it's a constant struggle. And what this does is it shows you the absolute power of the forces that are in play. But I love how you opened there. It's a curse and a blessing. Yeah, it is a curse, but now it's in the open, isn't it? It's not these parents sitting at home um, saying, how was your day at school? Oh, gee, your peanut butter sandwich. It's like, wait a minute, what are you being taught right now? I can see what you're being taught right now. And I'm with you. I think there will be an outcome on the tail of this that changes things. But what we're talking about, once again, is homogenization. Variety must be removed. And when you get down to gender, some of the most basic variety that makes everything, that's a pretty serious onslaught where someone is trying to control how that is thought about. And I lived a whole life where that didn't matter for the most part, except when the media tried to say, these people are being marginalized, or we're doing this other horrible thing to try to get your mind to make an issue where no issue needs to be. But where are we in the notes, by the way, man, I lost track. You know what? I've been jumping around also, you know, discussing all these different ideas. But one thing I would like to talk about is, you know, how to design a new curriculum. You know, if, if people are just interested in, in exploring for themselves, how they can teach their kids, if they're teachers, how they can uh, develop this into your own classroom. Or even if you're talking with colleagues, how can you just introduce these ideas to break free from this educational rut that we find ourselves in now? Some of the ideas that we've expressed here, which I'm imagining that very few high schools would be okay with certain things like the seven hermetic principles. I, I don't know for sure, but what happens with ideas like that is they get looked at as if they're somehow a religious or an affront to science, but it's really the opposite. It's like, okay, does everything really vibrate? Well, now it's on me. Does everything really vibrate? Well, I can't see that everything is vibrating. So it forces me to logically work out. Is this even possible? Gender, is it true? Well, I was young. I had a dog that had puppies. So now I can know something about gender and it goes on and on and on. And the difference between where we've come is the idea of regurgitation. For me, the news says this thing a thousand times, and then the minds out in the world start echoing. They use the buzzwords they use. And what it's done is it's narrowed, it's homogenized, it's removed variety of all these endless minds out there that might have had a different take. And then we get online and it even gets worse. Well, this person thinks differently than me. They're now the enemy. They're a shill. That's it. Everybody hate on this person because we don't see eye to eye when in fact, not seeing eye to eye is the very seeds of variety. And so as we head down the road here into this brave new era, wherever it comes out, I think in the short term, we're going to see so much less variety. And what I ended up doing is look at the things around me. Look at how many colors are on the cars. Look at everything you can look at and compare it. How much variety is there anymore? But 
if I was going to foundationally try to wrap my arms around what's being removed, for me, it comes back to variety every time. You know, Gro, when you're looking at a Renaissance painting, you can find so many different levels, not just in the technique, but, you know, the artist and his story behind it, the social context that was happening at that time. You can find different messages that they embed into that picture, into the architecture of those uh, cathedrals. Uh, You can find so many hidden messages. So as a teacher, that is how you teach the seven hermetic principles is you can't say, okay, I'm going to teach about vibration, but you ask a simple question of about, okay, how does, how does this social issue reverberate down to you? How does it affect people in this social class? How does it affect people in this country? How does it affect this social class, this ethnic class? So you're asking questions that deal with the seven hermetic principles without saying they're the seven hermetic principles. So you you don't say things like, okay, we're going to deal with mentalism now. Everyone take out your paper and pencil. But you say something like, picture yourself living in a house where the roof is broken and water is coming down, right? So now they're envisioning. And once you create it in your mind, that is what mentalism is. It becomes a reality. So when I say, I want you to design a home for a poor housing development, what are the basic things they need, this and that? And I say, your group, your team, I want you to make a logo and I want you to Focus on what is important about the logo you're designing for your team. You're teaching kids about a sigil. You're teaching them that they are creating not only with their mind, but with their art, with their words, with their voice. So you can put in these seven hermetic principles without saying, okay, now we're going to do, uh, we're going to do vibration. Everything is in constant motion. No, no. You say things like, okay, how will this project change if somebody picks it up from there? For example, my students are working on a project and they're in different stations. I say, everybody stop, move to a different station. You don't know where that person is picking up your work and you don't know where you're picking up another person's work. But you're thrown into a situation and everything is in constant motion and you need to adapt to that new learning environment and what that person was working on before, how can you make it better? How can you improve on it? So you're teaching these seven hermetic principles without saying, okay, now we're going to talk about gender. No, we talk about everyone needs to put in their part. Where is the compassion in this project? Where is the strength? Where is the support? Where is the camaraderie? Where is the cheering? Where is this and that? Those different elements and personalities Those are different aspects of gender. You need alphas. You need betas. You need people who will just do the quiet work. You'll need people in front presenting. But that is putting in these principles and you're hiding them without saying to your your administrators, your principal, your curriculum coordinators, I'm teaching the seven hermetic principles because I think it's great for the students. No, you put it in the curriculum in ways that if you're not a higher mind, you're not going to pick up on it. But if you are, you say, oh, I see what you're doing with vibration. I see what you're doing with cause and effect. You know, the Renaissance is such a prime example. We'll close out with these ideas. And here's why. Uh, We've done episodes to show that the Vatican had brought in the back door, the seven hermetic principles and all this so-called occult material. And in public, they were telling everyone that's evil. And if you don't believe in what we're pushing here, which is biblically related, then you're being sinful and you're a bad person. But if you go to all the art that was directly related to the idea of a Vatican in the first place and being funded by the very people who were running the establishment, what you realize is this art was made. It's at a high level, but only the surface narrative was available to most of the minds who saw it because nobody understood that the reason that color was used is because it relates to the idea of what the the principles try to open up the door for. That color relates to a certain aspect of nature. It has a certain vibration. And in this culture, it has a certain meaning. 
And so there was all this information buried levels deep in your face that everyone was completely blind to. And it even gets worse because as far as I can tell, a lot of that art was just echoing back to this other time we know nothing about, except that time, apparently it wasn't the artist that was important. It was the art. When the three fates were shown, whatever was attached in the meaning of the three fates was the whole reason for the art. What does this represent that's true about our world? Then when we got up to the Renaissance, no one could remember back that far. So they changed the meaning. They remade the art and then they made a rock star out of the guy who made the art. But the people who were viewing it, 80, 90%, maybe I don't know, had no chance of understanding how much had been embedded. And the simple truth is they were denied the tools to think about the natural reality. And I'm not saying that the principles is the only way. It's one of the few ways that I've found but I'm sure every culture has had a version. And that's really what we're talking about is this current age we're in, the way we're allowed to think about things in the public eye is being diminished to the point where even our gender is on the menu now. If you don't do what we're told, then you're somehow a monster or you're, you know, you're not a good person. And we're going to have to come out the other side here, aren't we? Uh, Jason, anything you want to get in before I wrap up? I do have a pretty in-depth question I would like to ask men about, but I know it's going to take some time. So let's save that for hour two. Okay. Man, anything you want to add into the end of hour one? Yeah. One thing, I, I just want to get Jason's point of view on this because this is an area I'm exploring and it's the classical music. I don't know how versed you are, but as a, as a music lover, I, I know you guys have talked about how everything is now just three chords and a riff, but the layering of classical music and all the different instruments and all the different, you know, I'm sure there's some encoding there, but, you know, have you done any of the exploration? Because I, I like to use music in my classroom as just the students come in, but I, I want to really put purpose behind the music I play instead of just the latest Taylor Swift song or, you know, just a, a Beatles, a common song from the Beatles. I really want to, but meaning behind the music I play. So do you have any uh, knowledge in classical music, Jason, how it might be layered in these esoteric ways? Not exactly, but frequency has a lot to do with it. And that can also translate to emotion. So just like you might choose a pop song, like you were referencing, you could use classical music in that same way. I'm not aware of anybody who is doing it where they're encoding serious imagery beyond the emotions they're trying to capture. I could probably add something here. Um, I've been thinking about doing an episode on this. If you go back and take apart the idea of an orchestra, so there was supposedly a maestro and he's going to write the parts for everybody. So that's that mind must have been vast in the musical arena, right? But it's alchemical. You have your wood winds, you have your brass section. You're already talking about things made in nature, metals. And you go through and see how it's broken down, your woodwinds, your look at even the instrument itself, what's making the noise. It's a reed. The old orchestration used to have a certain number of different parts. There were different levels to it. But when you think alchemically and philosophically, earth, wind, air, these kinds of things, and then over to the hermetic ideas, you'll see that the very construction of an orchestra um, is a one-to-one -one relationship with these underlying principles, which seek to describe our world. In some cases, and I hope I don't get this wrong, there's orchestras with 12 pieces, which is what got me going because I wanted to go look and see, well, was this the typical orchestra? Are they doing the sky clock? They must be. There's a 12 there, but that's what I can offer. I have a lot of work to go back and look at because I know a 12-piece orchestra is one very small piece of things. Yeah, that's what I was talking about, Crow. What exactly you're um, addressing is because, you know, with the stringed instruments, that's vibration and right. some of them are breath of life. And, you know, just the different ways they're played has to be a story that they're telling when this one comes in, when that one comes in. What are they encoding? And, you know, we don't have those maestros anymore that really, you know, I'm sure there are composers and maestros that can can write down a symphony, but not to the extent that we saw in the 1800s. 
No, not unless they make a new Star Wars and the last three guys that can do it. No, I'm just making a joke. You know, man, if I was going to introduce the classical music idea um, off the top of my head, are you familiar with the old Russian work, Peter and the Wolf? Yes. That one always struck me because you're listening to music, but the narrative of the story of Peter and the Wolf seems to be conveyed along with the music in the same way. Is it Rachmaninoff that did fly to the bumblebee? I think. But when you listen to that music, you can imagine a bumblebee flying. There's a couple pieces that really begin to illustrate the universal power. I would start with Peter and the Wolf, and then I might throw in Flight of the Bumblebee as examples, but there's no getting away from it. What makes the what makes the sound here? It's someone's breath, right? What makes the sound here? It's a string vibrating. And that'll correspond to everything all the way back to even things like Buddhism, where the Buddha is trying to teach the middle way and he's showing. If you take the string on the violin or whatever too tight, it breaks. If it's too slack, it won't play. But right there in the middle, it's valuable. Then it plays music. It vibrates. This kind of moderation idea. But that brings the first hour of uh, 375 to a close with Min Win and Jason Lindgren. I hope you'll join us on the other side at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And I will say again, uh, a very different episode we did with Min is 151.5. It's worth a listen. It's one of my favorite episodes. And it gives me hope that maybe some of the work Jason and I have done here will outlast me. Anyhow, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing. Come.